You're listening to The RC, your guide to digital cinema, filmmaking, and cutting-edge imaging. Hi, and welcome to this week's RC, number 97. Join in the studio, back uh, from being on location. Jason Wingrove, how are you, sir? I'm well, Mike. How are you all? I'm good. I'm good. Man, talk about a big show to get through this week. Man, man, oh man. It's been busy. My little sort of folder of links and clips and... Uh Interviews is, is bursting full this week. Um, there is so much to talk about. We just better get right into it, I think. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, so let's go straight to the news desk. And now, the RC News. And, uh, Jace, where are we going to start with the news? Well, I guess the biggest news, and uh, I guess obviously closer to home, is that X's are not only shipping, but I'm looking at one. <laughs> um, well played, take, sir. Talk us through it, Mike. Um, okay, so X is shipping. X is um, uh, obviously the second of the two epics, being the uh, sort of standard epic, as it were. And it's now officially um, coming out of the uh, out of the gates. And we think there are about thirty of them out there. It's not exactly sure. Um, what's interesting is that we got our epic twenty-two which, of course, matched the serial number of, of our um, original 22 red one. So, uh, look, I don't know how significant that is, but it's kind of cute. Um, so yeah. like we've got the M and the X, but I thought what was interesting is not only are the Xs shipping, but we can now sort of discuss any variations or changes, if you like, between the M and the X. So, Jess, you've been shooting with the X this morning. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, how do you find it? Is it identical to the M? Well, it's pretty close. I mean, obviously, it hasn't shipped with, it hasn't shipped with anything, any miraculous kind of secret Easter egg kind of firmware where you know magically have you know anything we're missing, like, <laughs> like on, sort of uh, playback. touch focus or for, um, or playback or anything amazing. You know, it's pretty much uh, in terms of operational. It seems to be we've tested it side by side with the M and seems to be running exactly the same. Um, physically, obviously, it's m- m- slightly different. The uh, obviously the top chimney heatsink thing. We've all talked about the fact that it's slightly different design. Um, yeah, the first sort of slightly evident thing, I guess, physically is the there's a top uh, cap, I guess, on the top of the camera marked red red link, which is obviously the um, Wi-Fi esque. Uh, communication system that the the Epic uses to talk to um, red moats and the, and the like. But on this one, obviously, it seems to be it's like a plastic flap that you can flip off, a very tough plastic flap that you can flip off and look at the, I guess, the, the sort of uh, transmit-receive card underneath, which I guess on the M's is, you know, obviously hidden under the shell, but uh, for some reason seems to be uh, deemed to be needing more, to be accessible in the X's. So, so obviously, you and I do a lot of work together. Um, so let's, for the purposes of this discussion, say that X is, uh, you, you've got that, I've got the M, just so we don't have to, so I'm, I'm going to be talking from the M point of view, you can talk from the X point of view. Um, the M has different pins on, slightly on the back of the um, red mode. Now, I think this may get changed. We have to take our M back to the US of A uh, to get that change. It's part of a program. We're also going to update our heat sink. So, of course, some of those changes may just be to our version 
of the M as opposed to the absolute version of the M, if there is such a thing. Yeah, very slightly different sort of alignment, or not alignment, but just slightly different sort of fitting of the pins that connect to the red mode or any other mod- modules on the back. But um, it's not like the one on the M is, you know, it looks like it's, you know, paperclip and, and rubber band design. It's just slightly different slightly different build. I mean, it still mates the red moat, still matches both and, of them. And works with it. Uh, the yeah. same red moat we have works with both. Hey, um, and also at the same time, Jim put out a roadmap um, just saying, basically, as part of one of these things he does every once in a while, it's kind of like a I don't know, state of the union. Um, he put out that the M was obviously shipping, the X is shipping, Scarlet's next. Um, and this is where, obviously, it becomes interesting because this is the sort of latest... Um, vision of what is sort of still front of house and what isn't on mm. red so what comes after scarlet uh well something that should have been here theoretically in 2009 is a red ray now we've seen red rays under glass at various shows red ray pro and, and red ray and we've heard that red ray was playing um at nab last year that's the thing that was actually playing in the theater so yeah so that's probably no surprise but obviously still pretty terrific and then we have the next surprise from NAB, which was the announcement of the Dragon update. Yeah. Um, now, do we assume that's the first Monstro chip? No, that hasn't ever been clarified, has it? I think it has been clarified. That's the first. The Monstro chips are still near to be clarified what the actual chip size is. Okay. Um, and you can say full frame, but that obviously that, that's not quite correct because, uh, uh, A, it hasn't been confirmed, but, B, full frame dictates a higher sort of more 4.3 ish or sort of academy stills kind of ratio so obviously it may be the 16 by 9 or, or uh, version or academy version of that so we're yet yet to, yet to know but uh, no nothing's confirmed but yes first of the monstros is what i understand okay then we go to the red projector now if you remember yeah. at FX, at nab i pinned uh ted on whether the projector was alive or dead and he had to run off to jim and get confirmation not so much that it was live or dead but just whether or not he was allowed to talk about it and they confirmed to us at nab time frame that that was still on the agenda and so here it is right after the Dragon uh, update. Um, of course, we've got no timeline on how far this is out, but I'm guessing Scarlet imminent, Red Ray Dragon feels like it'll be around NAB next year. Um, I'm guessing this bit. Yeah. Um, no idea from then on out where we go, because after that, we go to what? What's the the next one after that? That's another chip, right? Well, what I'm keen to see actually appear since since hasn't been mentioned for forever would be is the the 645 and the 617 the dsmc so the uh, 645 you could call more like medium format size um chip and the 617 is the huge kind of linhof technorama uh, uh massive kind of landscape um now, panoramic now even chip. i who was obviously a fairly much a believer have questioned, you know, whether we'd ever get to see the 617. Yeah, um, there you go. Just because it's so frigging off the dial big. Uh, if you remember back in whenever it was, 2009, I think it was, or 2008 when it was first announced, but it was yeah. 2009, 2009. Um, I think Jim himself posted saying that the 617 sensor uh, had, now I'm going to read this from a quote, I believe, from Jim. So a 261 million... That sounded right, yep. 352,000 pixels, which was more than the rods and cones in your eye, which was about 126 million in each eye for a total of 252 million. So between your two eyes, you didn't have as many rods and cones as there are pixels in the 617, which led people like me to say, "Mm mm-hmm, 
Okay, well, there's a good chance that with the best intentions, with no sense of um, deception, just completely with the nature of R&D, that may never see the light of day because it just seemed like a ridiculously large sensor. Yeah, so it's really good to see it back, well, to see it on the roadmap. And um, then after that, obviously, more presumably cool, funky, weird stuff. Surprise number one, surprise number two, but obviously that's going to be, um, uh, you know, who knows how many uh, you know, months or years as far that out is. But uh, still, could be, you know, it's good to know that they've got stuff up their sleeve, which, of course, they've always, uh, they've always, and they have always stated Okay, so, so if that's what Red is up to and they've um, said they're going to do that, we actually, as we're recording this, got a surprise Red-esque, it's coming, we're not going to tell you what it is, from Canon. So Canon's announced that on the 3rd of November, um, you need to be pressed to get this, there are uh, you know, reserve-the-date invitations going out for a Paramount Studio um, Event Now, what's interesting about this is, and we don't normally talk about gossip, but this isn't gossip, this is an actual thing from Canon, is that Canon has these words on that um, sort of hold the date kind of thing, which is, Canon is making a historical global announcement. Now, Jace, this has gone out to I many... I have not seen this. This has gone out to many DV-type sites, and it's at Paramount Lot, and it's of global... What was that? Global? His, historical global... Um, importance. So we have no idea what that is at all, zip, but obviously the the sensible conclusion would be it's got obviously, it's not a stills camera because why would you have it at Paramount Backlot? Why yeah. would you be sending it to the DV crowd? Yeah. Um, and it's... It's going to be, I imagine, their sort of Sony F3 competitor or their FS100 competitor, something that's, you know, a, a video camera with a significantly larger chip than what they've been doing so do far. Do we think that would be a, a globally significant event or do we think that, uh, like, a, would, would if you were in the Canon marketing department, is that more significant historically and globally or a 5D Mark III? Well, I guess I'm not imagining that the 5D Mark III is going to be this incredible rebuilding, reimagining of what a what a what a DSLR is. Um, my only guess is that they're going to solve some of the issues for those the crowd that loves it. But I can't see. I think it would still probably going to be a. a I imagine it's still going to be a stills camera first. But hey, I have heard rumors, definitely rumors, that they're going to be that they are doing a. Uh, of course, it only, only, only makes sense that they're doing a larger format uh, sensor video camera. So I, that's that's my guess. With Sony's I've also heard last week that 5D Mark III is not coming till you know is there's going to be no DSLR uh, announcements from Canon this year. Was also been rumoured this week, but hey, you know rumours. I'm getting very old listening to rumours. Yeah, but this is this is a, this is now different from a rumour. This is an actual announcement of sure. a big thing from Canon. In a in the in this podcast space, let's put it that way. Yeah, I mean, this is definitely sounds like it's in our territory. In other words, it's going to be something that is not just for the high end and not just for stills guys. Mm. Well, hmm. I'm I'm lost. I wait to see. I haven't seen the press release yet. It's very it's very very new. Literally, as we've been uh, speaking. So, news so to me. while we're on the subject of. Um, and by the way, if you want to, I and mean, there's nothing to, to know about this, there, there really isn't at the time we record this any other information other than speculation. Um, but having said that, there is another piece of interesting 
news that links both Canon and Red, which happened right after we recorded last week's Red Centre, yeah. which is the shipping of the Canon mounts for the Epics. Now, we got a uh, pre-release of this, um, so we believe the shipping is happening right as we speak, uh, but we were lucky enough to get an early one for help with uh, testing and review. And, um, Jace, I've got to say, uh, I had a friggin' ball with this thing yeah, when I went... Um, sorry? It's, yeah, absolutely. It's sensational. Um, so I mean, I, but we I, knew it would be. We knew it would be. I went and shot with it um, uh, around some animals trying to shoot. I thought, well, what's the sort of thing that I would like to do most with this camera? I'd like to shoot with a long lens that's got stabilizer in it because I don't have a long PL mount lens with a stabilizer in it. Mm. And I wanted to be able to shoot Gorilla Star where I wasn't going to like necessarily, you know, be a big shoot that I would... Why wouldn't I just... Like on a big shoot, why wouldn't you just use a normal PL mount 50 versus a... Yeah, uh, Canon 50. Yeah, and then also I thought I want to shoot um, 5K at 120 frames. I didn't want to go to 2K. I just wanted to get some really big 5K slow mo because I've got uh, 90 20 by 1080 um, stuff that is you know you can trick it to go to 30 or, or 720. You can go to I wanted full 5K slow mo, so I shot a lot of stuff at 120 frames um, a second. Yeah, and it looks fantastic. It worked really, really well. Now, since I've shot that, you've shot with it. What do yeah, you I'm just going to jump back to your. Obviously, there's links to your the the edit that you did um, that Matt here did, which it looks great. What was cool about it, obviously, that halfway through you're popping in and out, you're cutting, you're doing crops in the middle of a shot, oh, yeah. punching into well, like, the, yeah. I don't know, fifty percent crops easily, which of course you can do much, much more for and get away with. But uh, it was just nice to, you know, obviously, the fact that you hadn't shot in crop mode to begin with. But that no, looked great. It was beautiful, nice and crisp. Um, yeah, I shot with it this morning. I mean, the mount physically itself is just the, is really beautifully made. It's really gorgeously done. It has obviously not just the standard. Uh, push pin release bayonet type thing it also has a very nice confidence um building locking pl locking ring i guess which goes around there so you really are not that there's ever any danger of it falling out anyway but it's just a nice little sort of um safety uh safe mental safety net uh especially when you've got something like you know a 70 to 200 or you know when you can put doublers and things on that and put it in a nice sturdy mount it's again it's beautifully made it uh, obviously powers the lens uh we were using it i was using it this morning as well uh in the hand uh at 2k um no no tripod not resting it on anything just use relying on the stabilizer in the hand at 200 uh, mil with the uh, at 2k so essentially you know you're getting into like more than 400 mil or so effectively but the stabilizer you know obviously it's designed for stills but it can help you know obviously it fights you when you try and sort of reframe but if you're sort of parking and just sort of keeping it set it really does help so well, doesn't really the lovely. other option on your stabilizer not do that isn't like one of the two stabilizers better for a pan and one is better for a... yeah you know i've Never really looked at one and two, and yeah, there's a difference, but I've there never. is a difference. Yeah, one is meant to sort of fight you less on the movement, uh, but I think it's obviously also slightly less. It stabilizes you less. It's a kind of a softer mode, I guess. Um, but um, but you, but it's really obviously it's nice to have. And so what, what it does, frame rate were you going up to? Uh, I was going up to three hundred at two uh, k. I was obviously just testing the crap out of it, just going to three hundred frames a second uh, at about. I think I went to about twenty. 25 degree shutter so losing whatever whatever it is four stops now if you're at 200 and you're cropping in on that on 2k and then it's a reduced size sensor because it's as i put out in my article very close to a 7d Mm. you must be more higher than even 400 mil wouldn't you yeah i mean have to be sort of closer to 
I guess, closer to five. Um, but obviously, two two K is two point four to one. So you are almost going. I don't know. You're using a re- a lot wider frame, I suppose, than as a seven D. You know, I mean, in terms of your ratio is slightly wider. So I don't know. I didn't really compare it to be honest, but it was it was bloody tight. It was bloody tight. It was tight. But I had a look at it, and it was. You yeah. were shooting surfers from way off. Yeah, yeah. With again, not resting on anything, just literally just holding it, holding it on my am, chest. With I the used a monopod on it, um, and I, I confess, I really I had a monopod. I hadn't used it a lot, but after some stuff that Mark Toya did, I thought, yeah, I should get my monopod out. And um, yeah, I found it great. I actually mounted the monopod both on the seven hundred seventy to two hundred, oh, yeah, on the lens, right. and also on the Epic. And in both cases, I had no problem uh, with it. That mm. was a bit of a balance issue, depending on where you where you mounted. Yeah, um, I've got to say one of the things that I put in the article, in the articles on fxguide.com that had, you know, it's like. I think, and this is just a, an aside, but you can read and study up on this stuff till the cows come home, and then you get the camera with the mount, and you just get little insights, and it, it's just a discovery process. I mean, it is yeah. just heavenly to have that discovery process. Yeah, because I've been flat out, you know, pretty much since NAB. It was probably almost the last. There's probably maybe one other shoot in there where I would have touched an Epic, and I've honestly been have not, um, you know, really had much to do with one since since then. And um, it was really refreshing again to sort of get, you know, we sit here, we've sit here every couple of weeks and sort of, you know, moan and where is this camera and, you know, why, why is it so hard? And then you pick it up, you pick up the camera and you sort of look at it and you realise how solidly it is made, how how professionally this is built it is just a work of art and you realize yeah this shit is hard actually yeah i can completely understand how this takes an awful long time to get this right because it's uh it is quite an astounding package and i know this sort of just like sounding like freaking no, no, complete red mean, wanker obviously, but, but no, honestly I mean, you know I, I mean alexa is beautiful too but it's big and you know it's it's a solid solid you know big large camera you know and it's a natural progression from you know, D twenty one to to Alexa. It's a, it's a nice sort of you know. It's you can see the you can see the evolution there. This is just like still streets ahead of anything that's out there, and I just had basically was just sort of a, bit, a nice eye opener because I'd sort of forgotten how amazing it is. Really, I suppose. And, yeah. Uh, all the more amazing now for having this Canon mount. It actually makes it all the more. You know, previously I wanted to borrow one and go test one. I have to go, okay, well, can I borrow a lens as well? Or can I go and rent a lens or, you know, or bludge a lens off a rental company? Now I can literally just, you know, take the body and and, and know I can go shoot. So it makes it, you know, the camera just all that more accessible because the lenses are. I guess for me, I've shot a lot with the the Epic. But ever since New Zealand, when I first got it, we first went on our... um, thing with Stu uh, through New Zealand with uh, John, it just felt to me like this camera screamed out for small lenses and it screamed out that it could do a style of work that was very portable and very tactile and very much uh, DOP operator kind of vibe. Yeah. Um, and I, I stick by that. I mean, there are definitely reasons, and I go into the article in depth, as to why I don't think it outguns a Canon camera on stills. Um, but Again, it's probably all the stills functionality hasn't been, you know, uh, switched on yet in the Canon, in the uh, in the Epic. But the Epic with the Canon mount, for some people, will just be so good that they won't actually take the Canon mount off and go back to the PL mount. Now, yeah. I think I'll be moving between the two. Yeah. But there's a lot of occasions where uh, that Canon mount is really appealing. 
And I guess I've got a problem coming up because I'm going to LA to do a series of interviews with some really senior people. I'm desperately trying to work out now, do I take, last time I did this, I did it with a couple of 5Ds. Um, do I take the Epic now? Do I set up the Epic as one of our um, hmm. primary interview cameras? It, the reason for doing it, of course, is it can take the master audio from both, um, yeah. from both, which the 5D obviously can't. Uh, it also doesn't have a 10-minute bloody switch off thing because yeah. it runs out of time, which obviously the 5D doesn't. And also I can reframe it and I could punch in for those close-ups. So as I'm saying this out loud, I'm thinking, why wouldn't I take it? Yeah. Yeah, which you can't obviously do with something like an F3 or FS100, you know, which is uh, ordinarily would probably be an ideal sort of interview camera because you can put Canon mounts on it and it will have long run time and does have XLRs in it and it's about five or six grand. But you are stuck with 1080p and if you do want to sort of crop in to, you know, and if you're sort of obviously your final... Your, if your final deliverable is t- is is, yeah, I mean, is HD, yeah, you, sure. you've got nowhere to crop. I've got to say also, Jace, I was talking to someone during the week and I was consulting to them and giving them advice on a production and it wasn't until I was saying it that I sort of went, yeah, I kind of forget that sometimes. While I love the Arri to death because it, um, it is a great camera, you have to remember that if you want to shoot the raw mode, you actually have to buy an extra box because you know, you're shooting to the SYS cards. You can only shoot the SYS cards in you know, the compressed format. If you want yeah. to shoot raw, you absolutely have to go and uh, yeah. buy an extra box. SBSs, I think you are restricted to HD, and obviously yep. the raw is the two where you get the full 2K yeah, benefit you, you, out of you, the camera. you shoot to a codec to the SBS yeah. cards. I mean, um, as we've discussed before, many people are quite happy with the HD and quite happy with the, no, pro, no, the ProRes quality and, the you know, the color space is excellent. But And that's uh, absolutely, there's a huge number of people, if not the majority of people, that are shooting to the SBS cards. Totally great, awesome. I just happen to say that... <laughs> When I was talking about this, they wanted to shoot raw. And I went, oh, yeah, and of course you'll have to spend money to get a recorder. And I was like, mm, yeah, good point. Mm, now, yeah. I'm used to that because I've <laughs> used those recorders like the codecs and stuff. But um, anyway, let's move on and uh, discuss um, just quick other things before we get out of here. So uh, just some quick red stuff. Do you want to just run through some of these module shipping dates? Yeah, things? obviously what, what uh, part, what I didn't sort of touch on with the X is what does not arrive when you, at the moment, what's not shipping with an X. Uh, the camera arrived without a uh, side handle. Of course, that is not part of the kit, um, but they are back ordered. So unless you ordered one a fair while ago, you don't get a side handle. Uh, Redmote is not uh, with us yet. Obviously, those are being re reworked and uh, revised. So there's a fresh batch, obviously, coming soon. But uh, uh, it does not. Um, it only it didn't come with a charger. But those are, I believe, uh, literally today out of back order. So um, let's talk about these module ship dates. So the Pro IO, which is obviously another module that didn't that is part of the. Um, uh, was sort of in in the it was in the in the inventory for a while. Then it kind of got um, uh, disappeared off the radar for a bit. Then it came back. So that's theoretically back on the map for January. The nine inch LCD, which we, we've showed pics a couple of uh, episodes ago, which is uh, again that's for January. Uh, good to see that's actually still uh, marching on. The bomb EVF, which of course is been an incredible uh, back order um, issue. And I'm sure, obviously, Red's been desperately trying to get those out the door. Uh, again, if you want to buy one now for your Epic X or M, uh, you're going to have to wait. Uh, but there is a whole whack of them shipping this week, and obviously, they're desperately trying to get out of um, trying to get out of back order there. Red Moats. So, end of September, apparently, they're going to be out um, shipping a few more of the next batch, and then to be out of back order by the end of October. 
The side handle, again, that is, um, uh, that's in back order and should be out of back order in a couple of weeks and healthy supplies in about three weeks. Cannon mount, obviously the first batch has gone out. I don't know how much a batch is, but I don't know how <laughs> many. I don't know how many actually is out there in the wild yet. I haven't sort of heard from anybody who's physically got their hands on one yet. Um, well, apart from us. <laughs> yeah, no, and, and we don't really have a physical production one either. So Okay, but, but they are, they are uh, in the yeah. field. So healthy production uh, coming out October again. Nikon mount. Now, obviously, a lot of people have been asking about this. The uh, Now, obviously, they're revising it, uh, doing a, a rework of, of the prototype, and that is still in beta testing. So clearly someone's out there, people are out there testing these things. Um, full production should be in December. Now, the quad, uh, obviously, the battery modules. Now, the battery model module, uh, one of them is meant to ship with the X. That is not shipping yet. Uh, that will be coming, obviously, later on. The, there's a couple of versions, the quad red volt and the dual red vault module. These are things module. that take the vaults, or these are, these are the to vaults? Take, these are to take the vaults. Now, the, there is a double vault, isn't yes, there? Yes, exactly. There's, the quad, there's two modules at the moment, the quad red vault and the dual red vault. So dual red vault, obviously, on either side, you can put a single red vault battery on either side. The quad red vault, you can actually put four single red vaults on, or, of course, what is still coming but we haven't seen yet is the red vault XL, which is like the double-sized... Double um, red vault and so theoretically in the quad red vault module you could put two of those on either side or just keep one on the camera and hot swap to be able to uh, you know obviously keep not have to power, power the camera down uh, quad red vault modules uh, end of October dual red vault modules mid-December and whatever so everyone would really like to have obviously is a charger where you can charge more than one battery at once <laughs> there's a quad charger coming at the end of November I'm definitely going to have to get one of those because um, we, we're gonna, we're gonna. You probably got a lot of uh, red vaults yourself, Mike. Yeah, yeah, we've got um, ton of stuff, but we've got multiple chargers as well, um, right. a, as we have multiple card readers and things because they're single sure. points of failure and also increased throughput. Yeah. Okay, so moving on from that, um, another thing that happened just before IBC, and we're about to get down to IBC news because there was some really cool stuff happening there, is that uh, the foundry decided to discontinue Storm. Yeah, which was a really interesting move because, well, I was expecting a replacement that sort of was kind of like Storm. Well, no, it's based on Storm technology, but, uh, Mike, you're probably a bit more up with the, uh, I guess, the replacement. It's not a replacement. Not a replacement. I hesitated there. Yeah, no, the thing is that they they were selling Storm. Red Cine X Pro came out and they said, well, even though our Storm is really cheap, if Red Cine X Pro is doing all this stuff and heading down this path, then apart from being able to handle multiple different types of stuff, there's not going to be a lot of point of differentiation. In other words, Storm always had a roadmap that it was going to handle ARRI RAW and 5Ds. Red absolutely doesn't have that roadmap, but that was about the only big diff between them. And so uh, the foundry just decided to um, say thanks but no thanks and uh, we'll focus our efforts elsewhere. Now, they had been already working on and had decided to um, put effort into uh, a product that people, as you just did then, thought was going to be a replacement for Storm or Storm's Big Brother, which is a, a workflow tool for conforming and uh, and basically prepping stuff for effects. Now, that prepping stuff for effects, compiling tool, uh, has a, an enormous market. I mean, you could almost imagine tons and tons of these being sold to every friggin' Nuke user. So it's it's a, a, it's not going to the same... It's not aimed at red owners. It's aimed at Nuke owners. 
And so that came out at IBC. Now, some of the technology of RED was... Uh, so some of the technology that Storm was working on is clearly related because it's to do with, you know, conforming up edits and doing stuff like that. Yeah. So that's shared. But, yeah, it was a misnomer that... Uh, and in fairness, I don't think Foundry ever said it was going to be, uh, that this new product um, uh, was um, was going to replace it. And look, but, why just, but why just discontinue it completely? Obviously, you've developed it, you know. They are still going to be developing it until the uh, um, until o- October next year. You can uh, still buy it till the end of the month, and they're still going to they're still going to maintain the software until October. But they're not putting out new versions. No new versions, which is a shame because I had a beta yeah. of a new. It's version the end of the, really yeah, cool. but they will be maintaining it, and if there's any issues or well, I can tell you why because uh, you can get Red Cine X Pro for free. But are you so you're saying there's nothing that um, Red Cine X uh, that that Storm does that Red Cine X Pro doesn't do? No, it's just or that like versa? if you were the foundry and you were looking, where am I going to devote these incredibly talented engineers that I've got? And let's face it, they've got really good guys. Are you going to devote it to a product that's competing with another product that's free, mm. or are you going to put it into something that? you could sell to every one of your existing clients that you already have a really great relationship with and it's a thing that your clients really want and desperately need. Mm. I don't have any problem with this scenario because the reason that they discontinued Storm is that there is a free option. You know, it's not like they discontinued Storm because they were wanting to annoy me. Yeah. Um, they're saying, okay, well, you can get most of this functionality for free, so we'll step away and let somebody else do it. And I can't imagine Red wants the foundry to walk away, but by the same token, Red obviously wants to sell cameras and the money we're talking about is basically like less than a shoulder mount for red yeah so you know having red cine x out there for free versus the cost of of storm I mean, storm was i you know red cine x pro. was out but red cine x was out when storm was developed and launched now that's become pro all of a sudden it's yeah because they know. flagged where they were going with it and what they were doing and mm. the timelines and everything and they went look you know it's just not Okay. If you well, want to it's go an alternative. It's a pity that because it's there was a point at which it looked go. like Red Cine X was just an interim step, while Storm took up that software stuff, so Red could focus on other things, right? Yeah. But then Red said, "No, we don't want to do that. We want to develop the stuff in house." And Storm had no competitive advantage that Red Cine X did, because Red Cine X is going to get stuff that's going to go into the SDK before it goes into the SDK. Yeah. As Storm is only going to get stuff from the SDK. And like I think this is. Yeah. I think this is a Storm in a teacup. I, I would honestly say that, like, we've moved on. I apologise, everybody. No, but the thing is, there's a free option, right? I mean, you can't get really up pissed because they discontinued a paid option because they thought the free option was going to provide the services that you needed. True. I guess it was just an alternative to of an alternative user interface, an alternative way of doing well, the yeah. similar job, you but, know. But flip it for a second, right? Or, if or you were paid. If you were relying for your red camera to work on the Foundry supporting Storm... Yeah. But the way you are at the moment, you're relying on the red camera company to continue supporting stuff that supports the red cameras. Mm. Well, that seems like a pretty safe bet. So it's not like Red's has any vested interest in suddenly making the workflow a lot harder. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. I, I, I'm not. I'm not. I think it's interesting and significant that they did it, but I'm. It's not causing me to lose sleep. Um. Okay. So let's keep going to IBC now. And this one did surprise me in a good way, which yeah, was the absolutely. price of the F65. Now, now we know why it's called the F65. Yes, <laughs> uh, that coincidental. I, I, don't know. I think it is the F65. Now with a viewfinder for sixty-five thousand dollars. Now there is another model um, which has a uh, like a rotary shutter, uh, which is seventy-seven thousand and. 
further a dockable um, SR deck for, for 20 grand. Yeah. The thing about the 65 number is I believe, and I think that my compadres over at the FX podcast that were doing this from IBC nailed it when they said, you know, you really can't but think that the massively sort of lower price than we expected on this camera is due to the not due to the fact that the red camera company came along and just shook up the market and changed pricing because i would have expected a, a a camera like this f65 had it been in developed and released in an environment where red didn't exist to be at least in six digits yeah absolutely um, i mean the price rumored was and been hinted from from many areas was sub 100 which i had presumed would be 99,999 and then it didn't have you know anything and yeah the and you, you would have to add a whole bunch of stuff on it to make it work yeah right you, like at 135 you had a kind of workable camera yeah so now for 85 you've got the recorder everything pretty much you know set up and go and the although that obviously that probably doesn't include media and I'm not sure the pricing on the media on the t- on the but um, well, but it's a dockable um, but this is this is aimed straight at a broadside at um, at Alexa which uh, although obviously you know we 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 know the bodies like fifty something sixty whatever it is it's essentially you really can't get a, an Alexa landed for anything much less than about 90,000, um, 85 or so grand. So this is pretty much named right at them. Obviously, the Alexa comes with the ability to do on re- onboard recording um, and with some media, but uh, you're talking about that camera is now looking at a 1080, 1080p camera um, that records ProRes versus a camera that is, uh, in, in inverted commas, true 4K, uh, or an 8K camera, true 4K camera, that uh, will do um, essentially a, a raw file um, and record it internally. Now, can I just jump in here really quick? Because yep. somebody asked us to explain when we talk about SR what we're talking about, and that's fair enough because not everybody would know it, but I grew up with it, so I kind of sort of use it as second nature. So just for quickly, for those of you who don't understand what SR is when we're referring to SR, so Sony um, and the industry theoretically uh, came along and said, hey, we're going to produce uh, a way of recording HD and they called it HD cam, and that HD cam, everybody wanted it to look just like DigiBeta, like in the sense of uh, a tape that looked like DigiBeta, uh, a box like the DigiBetas, a deck that looked like a DigiBeta. It wanted to be like a DigiBeta, and they introduced it in like uh, 97, and the HD cam actually was pretty much like a DigiBeta cam. Um, it mm. was like 8-bit uh, DCT compression, and it tended to record 311, so not 422, not 444, 311, and it recorded at nineteen twenty by ten eighty, but actually it sort of sampled it as as fourteen forty by ten eighty, and then kind of stretched it back to nineteen twenty by ten eighty on playback. And the reason it did that is because the cameras themselves used two PAL chips side by side, effectively glued together with super glue. And so what you got was this um, sort of one hundred and forty four megabit per second recording thing that was a bit of a cheat. And yet you could call it HD, and that 1440 expanded back out to 1920 by 1080. Felt a lot like what happens with 16 by 9 on DigiBeta. Hmm. Okay, that's HD Cam in its first format, in, and I used that, and it had a generational problem, like about uh, seven or eight generations of right. dubbing it. Yeah, I always would, thought that was pretty kind of amazing that you would still lose generations on. Well, it had about seven to one compression in there, so right, that's yeah. why. Sure. Okay, now then SR came along, and SR was the the sort of better version of HD Cam, and now we just refer to SR as the kind of thing, and 
it's almost synonymous in the industry, you say HD cam or SR, because it's so much the status of a sensible implementation. So it's no longer that kind of kludge. It was um, 422 or 444, and it has two recording options, and like there's a high 444 option and a low 422, but it was so good that you could actually record two 422 streams um, sort of simultaneously, or you could record one 444. Um, it's obviously developed a little bit over time, but we're talking about like 440 megabits per second uh, instead of 144, so that's a big diff. And if you go to the full-on mega record mode, it's way up even higher than that, more like, uh, I don't know, like I think it's, it, it goes above that, like maybe 600. But the thing about it is that it, it's, you know, like more like a two-to-one compression that we saw in a DigiBeta. Mm-hmm. So we wanted that in the original HD cam, didn't get it. We got a thing that felt like it had compression artifacts and did. Whereas in the SR, yes, there's compression, but there's compression on S and a digi beta, and no one sort of thought of it as being compressed. We thought of it as being um, uncompressed. And so that term SR started to become synonymous with this idea of uncompressed HD. As I said, it wasn't, but most people would think of it as being uncompressed HD. Yeah. So if you had a format that you could describe as raw HD i.e. no compression, as good as it could kind of get, yeah. then that was SR. Now, that all changed when RED and people came along and started having actual RAW formats, which were upstream of converting it into the color space of Rec. 709 and obviously the debayering and the um, matrixing that goes on off the chip. But right up until that point, SR was kind of your, your most kind of RAW form you could get your, your HD in. And then after that, we applied tons of other stuff to it. Now, as time went on, of course, we moved from being in a tape format to wanting to be in a data format. So when we're talking about this Sony deck and we say it's SR, it's shorthand for it can record 444, 1920 by 1080. But, oh, by the way, as that's a 10-bit file format, there's no reason why you couldn't record something else uh, into that. So, for example, you have now the ability to do a 16-bit raw file into that 1920 by 1080 um, thing that is called SR. And um, that SR, this new ev- evolution of it, no longer has SR tapes. Memory. It's, yeah. it's memory, exactly. Yeah. And so that's what we're talking about. But in every respect, when we say SR, it's sort of code for high-end, virtually uncompressed or uncompressed 1920 by 1080, uh, normally 10-bit, but as the, now there's a 16-bit raw option. And it's the very, very most sort of religiously defined, sticks to the SMPTE standard, God, we know where we are. You can really put a scope on this and measure it kind of. It's published HD versus RED, which would be the exact opposite of that, which is a proprietary format that's awfully clever that kind of breaks a couple of laws of physics but isn't like published. Nobody else can subscribe to it. Nobody else can write R3D files but RED uh, kind of way to work. So I hope that answers that question. Now, so this, going back to the recorder, this SRR4, four... Um, the F65, it will record 4K, what they call double Bayer, 16-bit raw recording. So it records in 4K. It's not sort of being compressed or anything put down. Put down. It's not sort of, you know, the recorder on the back is like the sort of uh, the uh, cheap Hyundai version of the thing bolted on the back of the Ferrari. It's um, going to do, obviously, 2K raw at the higher frame rate. So I think you can go up to about 60 frames a second in 4K and then 1 to 120 frames in 2K mode. Uh, so that is obviously pretty impressive, obviously all impressive, and all recording obviously onto uh, SSD. And at this point, I think Sony should give it up and stop calling the bloody thing SR, because it's no longer SR. The big thing that SR had going for it is you knew exactly where you were. This is now 
are much more like a um, yeah. You know, you know, it's like uh, they've kind of bastardized the SR to make it be more than it is as a brand. Leave it alone. It's it's a very helpful concept. The SR just call this R four. Now, what they're also uh, implementing in terms of their raw workflow is that they're having an. Uh, I guess they're adopting a similar open strategy of providing SDKs to enable alliance partner manufacturers to integrate the F65 raw workflow into their extensive lineup of production. Um, so and post production, obviously. So they, their key partners, obviously, are you know Adobe, Arja, Apple, Assimilate, uh, Avid, Blackmagic, Quantel, Vegas, Foundry, Filmlight. I so mean, they're, they're you, speaking. Think, they're talking to a lot of people, and I, obviously I just trying to keep it an even, open. Thing. I don't think we'd be devoting this much time to it if it wasn't that that initial price is sixty five thousand. Because at, at one hundred and fifty, I was like, this is just not going to get picked up and used by anyone. Yeah, I still think though it's a bit of a bulky camera. Sure, I mean that's probably one thing where it doesn't win against over Alexa. But if you look at what the fact that this is this is. Uh, in camera with its onboard recording, it'll do specs way above Alexa, um, and do you know, uh, you know over cranking. Like you know, this feels like to me. This is like, um, like you know how in, in Australia you have two brands of kind of muscle cars. You have the the GM and the Ford kind of muscle cars. Mm. Okay, that's Alexa and Sony, and then you have the sort of custom exotic car, which is the red. And um, and Sony and Alexa will knock it out with each other because Sony and Ari both are really really good companies that people really know and trust. And mm. if you're if you want to buy safe in a sense of buy a muscle car, but from a company you really know and have known since you were a kid, then Ari and Sony are going to be the ones you're going to go with. And if yeah. you're somebody that just likes living on the edge but getting superior results, you'll then go you, red. Yeah, and go with the Tesla. Now, will that change in time? Um, I don't know, but I mean, you know, certainly right now, it's uh, it, it just feels like these guys are just basically building muscle car cameras. Yeah, and obviously Panavision are yet to show their hand. I presume they're not involved in any way with Sony these, uh, at this stage, and they're not going to bring out just a you know Panavision branded version of the F sixty five like with the Genesis. But uh, they do have something in the works, and it is coming soon. That is being tested now in Hollywood at this stage, so we're yet to know any any more than that. I want, I want to find out the name of that camera. Somebody leak it to us, will you? Genesis two. Okay. So if you uh, if you do happen to uh, know or being have uh, you know in touch with this camera, give us a buzz, give us a little ping. Should we keep going with um, stuff at IBC? Yeah. IBC has been huge. I must say, this is, uh, I mean, I've never been to IBC. Mike, you've obviously, you've mm-hmm. been to a few of them. And it's, I guess up until, uh, like with NAB, it's been more of a post kind of thing. Are you seeing more and more production stuff coming to, this is like, you know, the the other NAB? It, it's just like NAB in, in Europe. And I've got to say, I think part of that is just that most of the cool tech right now, innovation is happening in cameras. Isn't that interesting? Which is probably why we're doing this podcast. Hey, um... So Blackmagic, uh, talking about postings, has yep. released uh, huge stuff, Resolve. a huge roster of stuff from, from, from Blackmagic Design. True. But I wanted to focus on Resolve first and yep. foremost because I love it. Yeah. Um, so this is basically uh, Resolve 8.1. Now, it sounds like it's, well, it's a point release, but actually it's pretty cool because they've announced they're going to release uh, it for Windows. Now, if you yeah. are a Mac person and you probably think this show is like completely biased in that direction, you'd probably be... 
exactly sort right. Of clicking your heels. Apart from anything else, actually, this is significant because Windows supports a range of uh, NVIDIA cards that the Mac just doesn't do. Mm. So as much as I like Mac, Mac is really falling behind in NVIDIA high-performance cards. Absolutely. How long have we been seeing some interesting stuff with even just USB 3, you know, and that, that the Mac has been, you know, and, and wow. how long have we been sitting waiting for Thunderbolt stuff to be implemented? Well, I've got Thunderbolt, so I'm not complaining on yeah. that front, but I am yeah. complaining on the graphics cards because I think... This sort of stuff, like DaVinci, is where you really need it. And like you and I were just talking about this this morning, right, over a coffee. Like, you want to accelerate resolve by having a really good graphics card. Yeah. One of the uh, key parts for the Mac version of 8.1 is, which I'm really excited about, is the uh, 2011 MacBook Pro 15-inch. So currently, the 17's only been uh, resolve-friendly and uh, just just do the resolution of the, the GUI and stuff. It hasn't really worked correctly on the 15. It'll launch, but uh, so uh, compatibility with the um, Thunderbolt MacBook Pro 15-inch, which is I'm um, very, very happy about. And obviously there's a lot of other um, Well, the big one I was really about things. is they've done a huge amount of works with Ace's color workflow. Yep. Now, rather than go into this now, having said that, if you guys want to, I'll happily in, a, in another episode go into it. But yeah. I've got an article on FX Guide on the art of digital color where I discuss this. This is getting to a unified color space for ARRI, Sony, uh, RED and stuff. Now, RED themselves would argue that maybe ACES isn't the best way to go forward, but but for a lot of people, ACES is, is a lot of interest and yeah. uh, that's all being handled by DaVinci. And I can tell you off the record, well, okay, it's, I'm not off the record if I say it publicly. No, this but, would be their record. Mm, yeah. I can say that they've worked very closely with a lot of people to get yes. this right. Hmm. So uh, it's a good implementation. And every single release of this gets better and better in terms of round-tripping from Avid or Final Cut Pro. It already is amazing at opening opening projects without any sort of transcoding. And now you can basically round-trip through Avid with, um, uh, I guess, being able to open a project and then export and then export it back to uh, back to Avid, I guess. And quite quite frankly, impressive. I think a lot of digital uh, owner cinematographers, the people that listen to this show, are going to find themselves wanting to have a resolve. Yeah, yep, definitely. The more it's as we as the software becomes more intuitive um, and easy, you know, and you can start running it on more and more. You know, you don't have to have a cray supercomputer <laughs> in your on your kitchen bench. You can, uh, you know, that's going to happen. I um, so you're bitching about, about Thunderbolt, but the next item is a Thunderbolt thing. Yeah, uh, my main bitch is the where's the frickin' Mac Pros with Thunderbolt, okay? I mean, we've got every single computer under the sun. You can buy a Mac Mini, okay, with Thunderbolt on it, but where's the Mac Pros, okay? So, yes, I am bitching about Thunderbolt, but uh, not so much. There's, there is some accessories starting to come out, uh, which is good. Uh, and obviously, Blackmagic have been leading that, uh, as we've seen in previous shows. But uh, the new version of the Intensity is quite interesting. I, I had one of those Intensity cards for a while. They're quite good. Uh, this is a new uh, addition to that line, which is a uh, breakout uh, or a separate uh, card via Thunderbolt, where you can go from Thunderbolt output on your MacBook Pro through to uh, analog ins and outs, um, composite component, and obviously uh, HDMI. So through to um, you know, if you have a re- re- you know reasonably good um, HDMI monitor, you can get a, quite a good um, quite a good uh, output to judge from. And obviously, Resolve is quite is you know compatible with all of these cards. So yeah, so Thunderbolt in and HDMI out or analog out and in. Via, which is obviously it doesn't pass through this would have to be end of the chain a lot of uh, Thunderbolt stuff obviously like Firewire etc is uh, can do daisy chain 
this has just got uh, Thunderbolt in only. Yeah, and there's there's some, there's a quite a lot of really cool stuff we're going to discuss in a minute. We're going to go to IBC and some interviews that the guys did with some other stuff from IBC. But can I just before I discuss that and it's some really cool stuff from IBC and the guys sure. spoke to them in, in quite a lot of. Like, I found something during the week. I just thought was really. Yeah, cool. you sent me. This is freaking awesome and so cool. That I'm I, relying on you, Mike, and your uh, sort of uh, admirable fixation with uh, with these kinds of things. That uh, you'll be whipping the credit card out for one of these. I, I have already whipped the credit card out <laughs> and asked them if I can beat a tester. I can buy one Excellent. to beat a test. Um, this is called the Spider Jib. Now it's not shipping. It's not even in beta yet. They've built it, and I think they basically advertised to see whether or not people would be interested in I it. I don't know why this... When you look at it, and we look at the video of this, and obviously we can explain it in a minute here, but when you see this thing operate, you sort of think, well, why have we not seen this before? Why has no one done this? Yes. So or let me explain what it is. On a normal jib arm, you have an arc defined by the fact that the arm itself doesn't change in length. And so obviously you can go up and down, you can swing in and out, but you kind of swing on an arc. So then you get a technocrane, right? And the technocrane solves this problem by effectively having a um, jib arm inside a jib arm. So it obviously telescopes out in the way that a telescope would, and that lets you kind of effectively draw a straight line. Now these guys do it by having what is, the best way to describe it is a giant scissor action. And so the scissor action has counterweights on the... Front. No, actually there's a better way probably of explaining okay. this kind of thing. Uh, is it uh, Etch-a-Sketch? Okay, Etch-a-Sketch. Is okay, that right? Am I thinking, no, no, not Etch-a-Sketch. Sketchograph. Sketchograph? Okay. The thing which is essentially a pantograph. It's okay. not what we're describing, I'm pretty okay. sure. I'm so, going to Google that and make sure I'm right while, you're, <laughs> while you talk. Okay, well, I was, I'm was. i going to keep going with the scissor um, thing for a second. So basically what happens is as I move away from the base, which is on a normal tripod, so it sits on top of a normal tripod like a you know mini jib would, um, it telescopes out not by um, something moving you know like a telescope would, but by a scissor movement unfolding. And the reverse side of the jib arm does the same thing. So you've got counterweights out one side, camera out the other and as I scissor out one side it scissors out the other. Now we did see an actual scissor thing like that at NAB and we had yeah. a lot of fun goofing off with it. But because it's kind of similar but yeah this is a bit, looks a bit simpler and a bit more portable maybe. It's a bit simpler, a bit more portable but also it has less moving parts and I think um, generally speaking what you're going to get is a, a range of flexibility that means that the end result is I can stand in a studio beside a relatively small tripod we're not talking like a massive you know, something with a hundred mil bowl mm. and i can have an epic on there and that i've actually spoken to the guys as part of my pleading for them to get me have one um it'll hold an epic with uh follow focus and uh sensible lenses but not probably you know you will be able to find a lens that it won't work on and uh because of weight and it has what you would think of as a motion head kind of um yeah you know, underslung like under kind of, thing yeah, yeah like sort of and so then i would just be able to walk around the studio in a couple of feet kind of area moving in or out left or right up or down and i'm just going to have the weight of the camera supported by this rig mm. so it's not going to provide a super smooth image and if you watch some of the clips they they look almost handheld but they're so that it would give a handheld look uh it wouldn't give a steady cam kind of mm. level of steadiness but you could um, operate this thing in 15 hours a day and you wouldn't care right yeah i'd like to see no offense to the uh, woman operating this, but uh, I'm in the hands of a you know professional camera operator. Well, th there is uh, a video on the site that yeah. has a guy doing okay. stuff. Right. And one of the reasons I think it's cool, apart from the moving around the studio thing, is it's very easy to get over the top of something. Now, you know when we were shooting that, mm. um, that uh, Aston Martin the other day? Mm. 
So I had trouble getting into the middle of yeah. the Aston Martin without yeah, good for that. scaring the shit out of myself because I didn't want to touch or scratch the Aston sure. Martin. It's a portable sort of, I guess you'd call this like a zero-G jib. It's very... Exactly, like a zero-G. Yeah, wherever G you park it, you just set and forget. It cost, always remains in balance. Uh, anyway, it's one of those things, again, probably you have to go and look at the uh, clips in the show notes or longvalleyequip.com slash spiderjib. But, uh, yeah, very cool. And, uh, again, it's not r- quite ready for production yet. They are looking for beta testers. Hello. Um, uh, but uh, the recommended price is going to be about three grand. And the motion head or their little sort of mini underslung sort of head, which looks like a modified stills head to me, is about five ninety five. But, uh, yeah, not sure when it's actually going to come out, but we'll find out more for you. Uh, I can tell you when it's going to come out. They're going to come out that actually. near the end of the year. Hmm. End of the year. Hey, okay. um, cool. let's go to some of our interviews now. We've got two interviews for you this week in the Red Room. Neither of them are done by Jason or I. Um, I'm going to start with one by uh, Jeff Huser, my very good friend. Um, so Jeff uh, hooked up with the camera company that produces the camera he described as a couple of lenses stuck on a toaster, um, though it's since been described by others as the head of Wally. Um, do you... <laughs> Do you know what I'm referring to? Yeah, this is the uh, Medusa, uh, Medusa 3D camera. So it's quite interesting. It's um, their idea. Obviously, I'll let, let uh, Jeff and Medusa and co. Uh, explain themselves. But uh, I first saw this as an idea. Basically, it's an idea to be able to sort of con- combine two camera heads into one body. Um, this is a 3D rig, but it is a non-mirror, uh, non-mirror 3D rig. It's basically just side-by-side lenses like a... Like you know, like a pair of binoculars, but the the way the sensors and the lenses, mini sort of tiny little C mount lenses, are set up, you can get quite close convergence. And because one camera is controlling all the lenses, you can obviously you know there's one machine controlling uh, convergence, interocular, all the rest of it. Um, but anyway, I'll let the guys explain. Uh, anyway, the pictures itself just said, God, tell me tell me more about it. It's uh, quite an unusual camera. The Medusa camera is a, uh, a new concept, both in 3D as well as digital cameras and digital cinema cameras in general. Uh, what we've designed is a future-proof camera that allows you not only to have uh, variable interocular distance and variable convergence angles on a 3D rig, but also modular front ends so that you can use different types of image sensors based on the application requirements, based on the resolution requirements, and the recording speed requirements that you've got. So uh, using that, we're hoping that we've got a future-proof architecture that allows you to use the body and interchange front ends as you see fit. So the form factor is a little, at first I thought, off-putting. It was kind of like, wow, it's a little square box. But there's a lot of reasons behind that. Can you kind of explain that? Um, there's, There's several reasons we designed this the way it is. Um, one is the use of the uh, NATO rail uh, architecture on the outside. So this is a, a standard uh, mounting uh, rail for military hardware. Um, and it allows us to use a lot of the accessories that you'd find on rifles like bore sights, scope sights, uh, pointers, and things like that that turn out to be extremely useful in 3D shoots um, but uh, maybe a little pricier if you're trying to buy it through, you know, cinema avenues. And then as far as the rest of it, we, uh, we were going for a rugged look because we figured that in the real world, cameras tend to be manhandled. 
Um, so knowing that on the front end, we figured let's make sure that it can be manhandled and make sure that it's easy to set up. One of the things that, that we discovered early on with 3D is that there's an enormous amount of time required to set up things like mirror rigs and get things aligned correctly. So any way that you can reduce that time and uh, keep the setup time to a minimum, we're saving the end users a lot of money and a lot of time. So uh, the form factor is addressing both of those issues, you know, the ruggedness and the ease of setup. And then talking about ease of setup, you've got computer control over the lenses, right? Can you talk right. about that? And what, what's that? That's a tethered system right now. It currently is a tethered system, um, and we are moving rapidly to a Wi-Fi-based system that will allow users of uh, either iPads or any other tablet device to access the controls for interocular as well as lens control. So the model that we've got in mind is the camera turns into almost a data center that multiple users can access and have control over. Talk about the sensors then. This is currently the first generation, right? That's correct. And uh, one of the uh, design concepts behind this camera is that we are sensor agnostic. And what I mean by that is that we want to be able to use image sensors as they uh, are available and as they have resolutions and speeds uh, that are applicable to different uh, styles of shooting. Um, the way to think of this is actually, um, if we go back 25 years, camera operators and, and DPs would use different film stocks, okay, for different applications and, and for different types of, for different looks and feels. We think that being sensor agnostic gets us back to that concept. We want people to think of different image sensors as the equivalent, the digital equivalent of different film stocks. So we have that ability now to change the front ends. And recording media-wise, you're going to SSDs currently? That's correct. So uh, at the present, we've got a, uh, a tethered SSD that uh, is giving us uh, 1080p30. Um, and then we uh, are planning to have data packs that we can attach directly to the body. And you said there were other formats for 24, right? Uh, that's true. So we've got, uh, currently we support 1080p30, 2K24. Uh, with different sensors, we can also support 1080p at high frame rates up to 340 frames a second, um, as well as 4K at 24 frames a second. And this is all either 10 or 12 bit per pixel. And talk about lenses now. Lenses are a pretty big deal here because this lenses. is a very small form factor. Lenses in 3D, as anyone that's aware of, of shooting 3D with separated cameras understands, um, it's very critical to have matched pairs of lenses to make sure that you don't have uh, differences in focal lengths and differences in color cast from left eye to right eye. What we've done is worked with some very high-end manufacturers of lenses right from the start, right from their factory, to make sure that we can acquire lenses that have been produced in pairs. So we're not matching them post-production. We're actually making sure that they're matched from the factory. This keeps the, the consistency from left to right eye as, as high as possible. And you sell, you're selling a range of lenses uh, of uh, That's focal correct. lengths. So, uh, at, at present, we've got uh, a range of, I guess it's, uh, I believe it's 16 pair, 16 matched pair of focal lengths going from 4.8 millimeters up to 35 millimeters. And then zooms, if people do end up wanting to use zooms for convenience of setups? 
currently we're only offering primes, but uh, we are working on zooms as well. Uh, zooms are a little more uh, complicated in the 3D world. Sure. Can you talk about pricing and availability and when you plan on going to market? Um, we are uh, actually in beta testing right now. Um, we are getting some feedback uh, from uh, our beta testers. So we'll probably go through one more spin of hardware before we're uh, completely ready for market. But I would expect within the next six months, these will be for sale. Okay. Thanks a lot. All righty. So I think the interesting thing there is that the lenses are matched. Like you buy two lenses, mm. and they're not only matched lenses, which is important. Interesting but though, they're left he, and right designated matched lenses. Interestingly, though, he dodged the uh, price bullet there. He didn't uh, quite uh, tell us what their what their pricing was aimed at. But it's it's definitely it's an unusual it's an unusual camera company, an unusual camera system. They're definitely coming at it from maybe a more an industrial angle, but trying clearly trying to aim at. Uh, as I mean, apart from other industries trying to aim at cinematography as well. So um, as this evolves, it's going to be quite an interesting uh, system. I don't see it staying looking like this all the time. I can see sort of some evolution of the... If they want to sort of aim more for cinematography, it, it's definitely probably going to have to have some changes in its form factor. But uh, again, check out the pics. Uh, in the show notes and um, thank you Jeff for doing that interview taking the time I appreciate it mate so if that's Red Room 1 should we duck into the other Red Room for a sort of yes. perhaps less expensive kind of discussion though we don't actually know what the price of the first one is but um, this is um, something that uh, would you want to give us a the, the run up on this this is basically um, just an innovative bit of kit that deserves some attention yeah, now this is the uh, this is quite quite clever. Um, this is from our friends at Atomos, uh, who've uh, come up with quite interesting take on. Uh, and there is a few um, standards converters we've, we've, we saw at the show, but uh, this is uh, quite a small um, onboard standards converter called the Connect. Um, now. What's interesting about it, it looks almost like this, it almost looks like a camera battery, and it's really designed to be integrated, stuck on the back of uh, the Ninja or the Samurai. And uh, oddly, I should compare it to a battery because it actually part of it is actually a battery. You can obviously stack it on the back of uh, the uh, back of the uh, Ninja or Samurai on, on the connect back camera connections on the back of it. Use it, uh, mount it to the recorder on the ca- on the battery mount, and then put another battery on the back of it. It does have its own internal battery. Um, and uh, yeah, it's quite it's quite unusual, quite clever. Obviously, I'll let the Atomos guys uh, tell us more about it. And thanks to John Montgomery for doing the interview. Thanks for taking time to talk to me. Why don't you kind of walk us through the new Connect product? Yeah, no problem. Um, so basically, we've got a modular system that it has a, a foot of a battery on the bottom and a shoe of a battery on the top. Its main function is conversion. <laughs> From it's a three gig SDI to HDMI converter, and there's two models. One's a three gig to HDMI, the other one's HDMI to three gig, and that also supports obviously HDSDI and, and SDSDI. But what it does is it's the size of an MP570 battery, those small DV batteries from Sony, and basically it has an internal battery, so it's portable in the field conversion so instead of having a big converter that you you need to power from the mains ac or from a big battery in the field 
we made these standalone with a battery internal for two hours operation and you can put an MP series battery on top or with adapter plates other batteries um, to give you a two cell MP series will give you 12 hours of operation so that's enough for, for an event um, usually you're not out shooting for more than 12 hours at a time and if you want you can go to higher batteries but the genius part is with the built-in battery you can actually hot swap the Correct. attachable battery we call that continuous power and it's a patent pending um, technology so uh, those competitors out there, you should check the check before you actually implement anything, or, or your profit might be ours. I'm only joking, half. <laughs> so the battery goes on top, and when so your 12 hours of operations complete, you take the battery off. The internal battery kicks in. It's been charged by this battery, so it's always full, and you, you then start it, 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 without stopping. You continue to convert um, from the internal battery. And that, that will last you in two hours. So you've got two hours to go get another battery and put it on. And that'll give you, obviously, endless power. What about format support? What type of formats do you support? I mean, you're not doing any type of scan rate conversion or anything in this. You're just what, converting from HDMI. What we're doing, we're converting from HDMI to STI. It's a very simple tool to, to get out, to break out an STI signal to a cheap monitor or grab a HDMI output from a camera and run it 200 meters. That is what it's for. And, but what it, what it does do is 3-2 pull-down removal. So it obviously integrates, it's a, it's a standalone product. You can put it on the back, because it has a battery foot, you can put it on the back of a, a monitor or an LED light and give that device continuous power. Not only the conversion, but continuous power. So I'm powering my LED light, the battery runs out, I take it off, the internal connect batteries powers the LED light for a period of time and you get your battery back on. So continuous power can be given to other devices, your Marshall monitors for example. So in answer to your question, the, the main um, application for this is to keep it in your pocket because it's the, that size and just to pull it out as a tool, it does 3-2 pull down removal to allow you to record 24p from a 60i signal, which is an important thing. All the cameras output 60i and 24p over 60i. Um, so we removed that in order for you to be able to record 24p. These are perfect. They sit on the back of our Ninja and Samurai to give the Samurai HDMI in and out and to give the Ninja SDI in. So Ninja now becomes the most affordable SDI recorder, ProRes recorder, and we also have DNX HD now that we've just announced. In addition, you've got a USB port on that. Is it for software updates or firmware updates? Correct. Firmware updates, and uh, you can power the unit from a USB port. Okay, and let's just touch again that you just mentioned about the yes. DX HD support. I mean, I think that's a big thing because I'm sure you were getting oh, hit yeah. by a lot of Avid editors. We were. That. We were. When are you going to? When are you going to come? Um, Avid announcing that they 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 they're supporting ProRes natively on the timeline. Obviously, is is a big thing. Um, was a great announcement for us. But we we always planned to support other editing codecs because the concept is editing codec recorded at the camera, get rid of your capture step and obviously we've added monitoring and things like that to it but the main function is to get you that editing codec so that when in 4210 bits that when you get into the edit world it's ready to go and you don't have to do any, any wasting time capturing etc. Um, so we, we always wanted to add new codecs DNX is the obvious choice, it's an industry standard, we obviously open up broadcast customers as well as post production customers on the higher end that are using these codecs every day and it allows us to go and offer obviously a, to a bigger customer base and open up especially the, the larger broadcasters are very interested in the product now because natively they can go into their servers 
and play out an archive in, in, the, in the way that their infrastructure has been built for. And then it's for those of people who've already bought a device, there's an upgrade charge. But is that built into new purchases? No, it's always an upgrade. Okay. Um, it's a license with Avid that, that we pay for. So I'm just passing it on to the customer um, to allow what we have is a microprocessing chip on board the Samurai that is unique for each Samurai. So you download the Avid upgrade. That will be tied to the serial number that you put in from your unit. And that firmware is specifically for that device. If you then copy that firmware try and put it on another Samurai, it won't go. So that customer then forever has Avid DNX HD capability on their unit. So you only have to upgrade it once and then you remain Avid DNX. And you can choose between Avid DNX and ProRes on the unit. So I like, uh, I like where this company is going because this to me... Jace is a product that has some good design. Yeah, because it's somebody's thought about it. Yeah, and it's not just well, I'm going to make something. I mean, we've bought boxes before. We've got like little um, boxes that convert stuff. Yeah, and the trouble is, no one's thought about where you're going to put them. Yeah, <laughs> or that's what you're right. going to do with them. Exactly. This company and how you to, power it more or more to the yeah. point. It's great. Yeah, put it on. Oh, no, we're going to get a power out of this from a 5D. Oh, I don't know. Yeah, so I think it's a really great idea. Yeah, no, clever, good on them. I just thought they've they've gone and they've done a bit of design and they've added. They even put a torch on it. It's quite bizarre and you know test patterns and it's you know it's very clever and in a really small uh, form factor. So yeah, I'm not sure if they mentioned the price, but I think it's about three fifty US. Okay, so those interviews are great um, that we've had in the red room. But actually, what I thought we might do, Jace, is actually cross because uh, I got a chance to talk to John Montgomery himself, uh, my good friend. And I thought we'd just get a vibe for what the feeling is. Because, you know, sometimes at the show you see you say, well, this week, this show, sorry, there was a lot of whatever, you know, mm. stereo. There was a lot of, everywhere I went there was epics or there was whatevers. So I just thought I'd get that vibe. Um, and John has just got back from Paris where he, or I think London, uh, having been obviously at Amsterdam. So he's probably pretty jet lagged. But um, let's cross to that uh, interview now. So, John, thanks for joining us. Oh, no problem, Mike. Happy, I'm actually happy to be home and be able to chat with you. I've got to say, one of the things I was really keen to talk to you about was just get, before we get into some of the more specifics, was just to get a vibe of IBC this year because sometimes um, it's really hard to tell from like press releases or stuff that you're doing. You know, when walking around, I always get a sense of what people seem to be focused on, what's a hot issue, what's you're seeing a lot of on the stands. And you don't really get that from being there. And I know you and the guys, you know, so obviously spent a lot of time at the show but and did a bunch of interviews and stuff, but was there any sort of overriding impressions of like, oh, this seemed to be a big issue this year or or not? Well, I think what's interesting is maybe the or not factor. I mean, you having been there last year and all the 3D and stereoscopic was certainly the buzz, I think, last year. And uh, just talking to everyone that we ran into that has seemed much more toned down this year, and I think maybe that's just stuff's maturing, people getting used to doing it. I'm not sure what the reasons are, but... Um, that was actually much less the buzzer. I mean, it was easy to peg that one last year, I think. Yeah. Um, and this year, you know, not not so much. I mean, you had people like, well, you know, Aerie had, quote, on display their, their uh, M, Alexa M, right? But it was set up on a stereo rig, right, to kind of show the compact form factor, for instance. But, you know, it wasn't really that same buzz that we've got the latest, greatest, best stereo 3D rig that we were seeing last year. 
Right. So I think it was much more kind of an um, evolutionary kind of maybe almost, I guess you could say almost in between year and where there was, you know, I think the kind of run in my thinking, things always kind of happen every two years where you get some kind of major focus. Um, this just seemed to kind of build upon last year and, and products uh, that were announced last year at IBC uh, have been shipping now um, because they're, you know, would ship shortly after the show or early in the year. And now they were just kind of more mature in nature than groundbreaking, you know, not fewer and fewer product introductions, I guess you could say regarding that. Now the rest of the world's been hearing about Europe's financial woes and that, you know, obviously Greece being part of the EU is likely to bring down the house of cards. Is it, did you get a sense that, that business was down because it was not kind of subdued? I would say the opposite. Um, really? Just in discussions, discussions with people. Um, I think that the post-production industry, similar to what we saw at NAB this year, we're kind of turned the corner and we're continuing, at least in our area, um, notwithstanding what's generally happened there in the Eurozone. Um, lots of big developments. There are several people that you know, I can't really mention, but you know, some significant million-dollar sales of gear, uh, upgrades, just things going really, really well from a variety of manufacturers, from, like, I will say, from software to more bigger iron-type type manufacturers. It seemed like it was a very positive show. And I, I think maybe some of that also has to do with um, there's a, a lot of people from India who, who uh, attend IBC in Amsterdam just because of proximity, I think more so than NAB in Las Vegas. And I, I do know that several of those purchases were actually made there in that region as well. So I, I got the vibe that a lot of happy sales get uh, men and women um, on wow. the show floor. That's yeah. really interesting. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, it's, it's anecdotal, of course, right? I mean, but hmm. just in talking to people and trying to get a vibe from asking people, um, it seemed to be very, very positive. Uh, at, at the show, I have to I have to say, if you're not so familiar with um, Eastern Anglo politics and history, uh, that whole idea of the Indian, but you've got to remember, India was an English colony, and yeah. a lot of people feel more comfortable going back to Europe and from India than to America, which seems to be, um, you know, let's face it, India and America have had a couple of minor, um, you know, issues over time. So there is mm -hmm. a kind of historical reason that would make sense. But until you said it, I didn't think of that. So that's true. Yeah, you don't see a lot of the Indian production community at, at NAB. No, no. And the, so again, I think it was a very positive show. Um, again, nothing incredibly groundbreaking. I mean, a lot of, as, as you and Jason have talked about, a lot of good substantial developments from the show. Well, we were talking in the, <laughs> from not having been there. So let's, let's hit a few of those things because you've been there, even if we cover some ground uh, that Jason and I uh, smoke out of our, spoke out of our ass over. Um, and uh, I guess one thing I was desperate to find out from you about we didn't discuss at all because we just didn't know is what's the deal with this Red Rocket card thing that I'm sort of hearing about that was plugging into Because <laughs> I have Thunderbolt. I really want what, – what's the deal? Oh, well, yeah. I mean, Thunderbolt, I think, is just the perfect complement for field production using red footage. Um, just simply even from hard drive, you think about taking a nice disk array out, the kind of throughput that you can get from it. But what's interesting about the Red Rocket thing, I saw a couple of reports of it. And, you know, of course, Ted uh, Shilowitz actually demoed this Red Rocket card um, in, you know, hooked up to MacBook Pro, I think it was, through projector. Uh, and so forth. And I assumed that was something that they were doing, but that's actually not the case at all. The, what they were was actually utilizing was something that comes from Sonnet, uh, actually one of my favorite kind of uh, peripheral companies, I have to say. And they basically, uh, by what they're saying in the fall of this year, going to be shipping their Express 
uh, PCIe Express slot Thunderbolt expansion chassis. So basically they have a kind of a half card length version with one slot and they have a full length card version with two slots. Uh, so basically what it allows you to do, it's an external ex- uh, enclosure, allows you to put in uh, a PCI card in it like the Red Rocket card and basically hook it up to your Thunderbolt port on your Mac. also comes, of course, which is really nice with a loop through. Uh, so that's just one. It's not the end uh, item on your Thunderbolt chain, but you can loop through to your you know, hard drive array and then to your monitor if you wish uh, as well. So I think that's it's an incredibly substantial development because the Thunderbolt uh, throughput certainly can handle uh, transcoding the the red files on the fly, and then if you'd save it, you could even transcode it to files um, right on uh, you know so let's say a Promise Thunderbolt RAID array uh, that's also on the same uh, Thunderbolt slot so, so let, really me ask sus- you, let me ask you the stupid question because somebody asked me this and i was completely ignorant so we heard when thunderbolt first came out well there's no reason you couldn't put a graphics card out on the end of thunderbolt as well so this two card slot does that mean i could put a red rocket card and some kind of higher end graphics card out there or am i just missing the boat you're kind of out of luck because of the way that the uh, uh, mac os 10 operating system uh, line works is it's not really supporting an additional di- display card on the thunderbolt port uh, because the thunderbolt port is actually designed to carry a display signal not necessarily be used as a pci expansion slot so at this point in time at this current uh, stage technology that's something you won't see which is kind of i would say kind of a shame for something like if you think about the potential of having a resolve hooked up to macbook mm, pro yeah. having some offset graphics uh, uh controlling you know the, even though it's only a 4000 card on the os 10 plan, on the mac platform which is a bummer but you know if you had two 4000 cards that'd be better than no 4000 cards uh, but sadly that's not the case so at this point in time uh, that's just something that's kind of ruled out of the operating system. So, uh, as well, I guess, in, in that case. Uh, hopefully, uh, as the technology, you know, enhances and develops further, that we'll see uh, that possibility. But now, not so much. So, uh, that would those two slots be used for Red Rocket and something else, or just Red Rocket on that two-slot expansion it could be it could be if it's the correct if it's not a display card but you could have say and well, how about a, a fiber card oh, okay instance, maybe on it you could throw a second fiber card in it um that would be actually pretty cool wouldn't it <laughs> so um yeah i think it makes a lot of sense for remote production to have uh, uh i actually really like the idea of not lugging around that mac pro tower and kind of off setting some of that processing stuff externally. So, you know, granted, if you, you know, traveled somewhere, you'd have the expansion chassis and your RAID array, but then you could just kind of leave that in your hotel room and carry with your MacBook Pro if you wanted to. So I think it's actually kind of a freeing freeing way of thinking moving forward in remote production. Hmm. Well, one of the things that, uh, that I know you liked was the, uh, speaking of like um, Resolve briefly there, the new yeah. tangent panel. Yeah, those are really, really nice. Um, I know you guys briefly touched on those, but I just I want to confirm that uh, the Element series is really, really nice. Number one, I like the the ability to break um, break up. You know what they have four different control surfaces, so you could say maybe buy two out of the four if that's what you want to concentrate on. But I just gotta say they really feel so much better than the Wave. I mean, you've played around. I mean, you've played around with the DaVinci control surface, right? And it's not, mm. 
you know, like the feel of those balls. It's not quite like that, I would say. But it really does feel much better than the wave panel. I much mean, more professional, uh, much more solid. Uh, the LEDs look nicer. All the buttons feel, I mean, they just feel better to me uh, because it's built in this aluminum closure. Um, I, think it's I was going to say, because the thing yeah. I couldn't really tell from the photos is how it sort of felt. Did it feel like plasticky or, or solid? But, no, it feels really solid, and which I don't get that feel from the Wave. I know you've used that uh, panel a lot, and it's been nice to have. But yeah, <laughs> we actually bought the Avid version, not the the Wave. The you know, oh okay, the, yeah. Because, but having said that, I want to give Wave some kind of love because actually, when Wave came out, they were kind of the first to give us the, a really cheap panel. So they kind of the helped. only game in town, yeah. If you were at that point in time, exactly. And, so, and I think what they've done is they're you guys are just now trying to fill a niche uh, middle, between the two products and yeah. in, in, in the products. And I think for a lot of people, they're going to like that. And I really like the idea potentially of just having maybe one trackball or you know one of the, you know one panel with the three trackballs or something like that. I kind of like that mix and match thinking as well as opposed to that huge you know the huge long thing. Even though they, it doesn't take up a whole lot of room, and with a break because you can break them apart. Right. You know, you can't actually rearrange your desk, so you could take one off the side if you weren't using it. But I, I was really impressed with those panels. Looking forward to actually getting hands on them. So what what else at the show? Um, was there, I, I should ask this. Was, did you see much OLED stuff there? Did, was, was Sony, you know, the um, OLED stuff? Was that prominent? Yeah, those were gorgeous. I, we talked about that, I think, in uh, you and I in a DOD or something like that. And I actually hadn't seen those in person. You were fortunate to see those at some show yeah. I, I forget what but simply australia and then really really those are gorgeous mike you were right um and but they did come out with kind of a middle series professional version in between the other two so uh it, that they debuted at the show i forget the exact model numbers but those i mean anyone who saw those displays at the show just basically raved about them um i think that's definitely um definitely be something to have if you were saying up a suite and but it's kind of interesting at the same time. We talked about it a little, little on the podcast, FX podcast, but this idea of, you know, in, even for episodic television in L.A. and New York, they're using Panasonic plasma displays, which is really close to what you have at home. Um, and I've always loved the idea of the reference monitor, but it does open up that kind of worms when you have a, a studio monitor like the OLED that is just so vastly superior to what you have at home. Um, is, are you grading to the wrong reference? But anyway, that's just... That's a longer discussion, I think, than... Actually, you know, it's funny. I was talking to a director the other day, and he said, look, to tell you the honest truth, it used to be that they didn't come in for the effects because obviously that, you know, went for a week and they didn't sit in the suite anymore. And yeah. then it, they used to didn't, not come in for the edit, just do some edits and show me. But now, he said, it's getting to a point with agencies that they're not coming in for the grade. They're just saying, look great, it make it look <laughs> exactly. nice, but they're actually coming in for the grade, which to me is just... Uh, and I just can't even get my head around I, that, but... I, do, I yeah. can't either. But uh, I know, you know, we've always had that problem. You know, our CRTs that we use, the BVM series and all the big tubes, were always vastly superior to what you had in home and the colors didn't match. But I find it interesting that we've been forced to kind of work around that with, uh, you know, generally the standard adopted 50-inch Panasonic plasmas um, as kind of almost the reference monitor uh, for client viewing in the, in the suite. And maybe we'll go the other way now with these OLEDs, which are just, I've never seen uh, richer blacks. Yeah, uh, they are I haven't seen that since the CRTs, Mike. <laughs> Stunning I mean, to me. What I want to have is basically that is, and I'm happy to have a, <clears throat> a PVM, not a BVM. I'm happy to have a PVM right. as a grading monitor, know where I am, and then have a normally switched off plasma or LCD even 
and then just switch that on, have a look at it on the domestic set, and then switch it back off yeah. again. Um, and that's I how like I used to run my suite. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. We used to kind of do that as well, where we had a bigger screen. As opposed to 19-inch, we'd have a bigger screen for clients, but always careful to to qualify those. But anyway, the, your, uh, those panels were nice, and like you say, every, everyone who saw them just fell in love with them. Now, you mentioned briefly there the, the um, FX podcast, but if people are listening to this, and um, mm. there's another interesting, obviously, IBC discussion, a bit more post-focused than camera-focused. Yeah. Uh, on FX Guide and uh, have a listen to that. You were with Jeff and... Uh, Simon Blackledge Simon, from yeah. Space Digital in, in uh, Manchester, who's been a friend of ours over the years. Oh, yeah. um, Simon's a great guy. And, and actually, I want to... There's just also something interesting. We have an FX Guide TV app, and a couple of the things are kind of more uh, post-related. But I think something that could be of interest is just this quick look at the SGO Mystica, uh, which has seemed to find a real niche in dealing with uh, quick stereoscopic processing uh touching on stereo but it's kind of an it's very interesting product um very fast uh, and it seems to be getting quite a bit of traction uh in europe it hasn't been introduced really in the states they kind of wanted to get the market going in in europe but it's a really interesting uh product so if you're kind of interested in that stuff kind of replacement for a not replacement closest thing i can think of is like a pablo maybe Right. But it might be of interest to some of the listeners who listen to the RC who didn't catch the FX Guide TV. And uh, did you get any sense um, of the cameras? I mean, I guess you did. You yeah, you did. You saw the F sixty five at NAB, did you or or not? You personally? What at NAB? Yeah, did you? No, see no, no, no. I definitely checked it out here uh, or <laughs> here uh, in Amsterdam. Uh, as well, and that was, I think, as far as camera gear, that was probably the biggest buzz I would say at the show, um, simply because people were, you know, really thought the price point was interesting, thought the images that they had on display were were stunning, and that they seemed to be doing things right. I mean, we were talking about this earlier, Jason and I, on mm-hmm. on the podcast, and yeah. our point was, if it wasn't th- this price, you'd be a bit dismissive of it because <clears throat> you'd sort of miss the boat. <laughs> The only thing I would say is it still struck me, and it's a little hard to tell from the pictures, but it still struck me as a pretty physically big camera. Yeah, it's not um, it's not epic size for sure. <laughs> it still follows the same a uh, lot of the same uh, you know Sony studio camera size. It's not something tiny, you know, similar to where the Alexa you know coming out with her smaller version. Um, for various reasons, the, the Sony fits in the old standard larger size form factor than those two. So, yeah, it's uh, but I got to, you know, technologically, they seem to really examine the market. And we were talking, it's basically if you'd wrote a, write a press release in response to everything that Red does, that's kind of what they were trying to do, I think. <laughs> you know? Well, did you see, I don't know if you have, you've been traveling, but uh, there's a big announcement coming out from Canon uh, at the very the Hollywood beginning of thing. November. Yeah. So, um, we were speculating a little as to what that might be, but it certainly looks like it's aimed at the uh, image production, sort of, for want of a better term, the film and video market than it is the stills market uh, by nature of who they've sent the invites to and, and stuff. So, you know, who knows? But there are lots of rumors going around about what that might be. But um, Yeah, that, that one, I believe, would be much targeted towards our industry than the upcoming announcement went on the 22nd, which now even seems to be printers and professional things like that as opposed to potentially the in any kind of professional slr camera but yeah. that's going to be i think a very interesting event and i think you'll definitely be um close to the 
I would guess close to the Epic style thing versus the SLR type I mean, announcement. Let's Maybe. face it, Alexa <laughs> goes over HD by doing two and a half K. Yeah. Obviously, Sony's now got a higher resolution than HD camera. Red obviously was built on that. So one would have to make as a guess that Canon's thinking they need to come out with a higher... Do you remember a while ago they did show a prototype of a mm-hmm. thing that looked like a hairdryer? Yes. And yes. it was just the weirdest ergonomic design ever. And it's like some design company came in and said, no, 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 we can do a really good job. And everyone was like, fuck off. <laughs> or, or, they, or they got the chips built and they just had to form some form factor around what they had built because they're afraid to change anything else. But, uh, yeah, so it's not yeah. like we've never heard anything from Canon, but yeah. And, I, and I would have to say I would think that the Tsunami had a huge impact on mm. timetable for their announcements and stuff. So I'm sure it would be easy to get a six-month-plus delay uh, in, in this product simply because of the Tsunami and all the tragedies surrounding that. So, I mean, wouldn't, yeah. you, wouldn't you just be saying we should focus on what we've currently got in the pipe Let's not try and introduce a new product until we can get this sorted and we'll, you know. Yeah, exactly. Let's consolidate. Exactly. Very, very true. And anything else so, that we haven't touched uh, yeah. on that you really took your fancy? Was there anything you personally wanted to buy? Like you kind of went, ooh, I want one of those? Um, you know, no, I have to say. <laughs> I, was, I was actually quite comfortable. Um, I mean, yeah, there are a couple people caring. I mean, I, I, you know, I want the, the Canon... 100 macro lens uh, for my SLR. But uh, that's more uh, walking around the show floor with other people and exchanging lenses that way. But uh, from a production standpoint, there wasn't anything I felt that I really needed or, or wanted from that show, which is actually a good thing, I think, to, to sa- save a bit of money and see what's coming down, down the pipe here later in the year. Yes. It's funny you should mention that 100 mil macro. I had an eye on that. I <laughs> Maybe yes. I'll have to torment you with that when we meet up at, on the West Coast later this year. It's, uh, yes. Hmm. <laughs> it's 2.8, isn't it? Is that right? I think it is 2.8, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. That was the one I was looking at. Yeah. yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Okay. And you'll do your usual scoff at, I'm really digging the 70 to, uh, or, I'm sorry, 24 to 70 for the kind of production that I'm doing at IBC. I re- once again rented the Sigma version, waiting to see what happens with the theoretical Canon version that they semi-announced through patent uh, earlier this year, see if that comes out. So that one I will make a, a dive for, for the type of stuff I'm doing at IBC. Well, I'm, I'm here to say that I was doing some <laughs> stuff and I was starting to think, you know, I could really maybe go for one of those, uh, is it 28 to 70 zooms? What's that? Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And uh, I thought, God, if I say that out loud, John's going to shoot me. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I like the Sigma. I've been a, it's a little smaller than the Canon, but uh, just uh, I've rented that twice now on these on trips to various trade shows, um, and enjoyed that. And you know, we've had lots of discussions about that. But it's a nice thing when you're, especially you know, I went over to London uh, to film something by myself at the Foundry, mm-hmm. uh, the Hero presentation, and I really did like having being able to just quickly set up at times. Uh, without having switch lenses, just change framing slightly on the guys and stuff like that. So it was actually nice to have the zoom there. Well, my, so. my, my uh, argument is uh, um, that I'm now sticking um, these Canon lenses on the Epic. So, uh, Epic, yeah. So I'm now like, well, I really can justify it now. <laughs> really justify even spending more money. That envy. It, looks, it was, looked like a lot of fun. So Yeah, it's, yeah. It was, it's nice to hear about it. Yes, it is fun. But uh, but still, okay, so the vibe was 
business is stronger. I hadn't anticipated that, and that that it wasn't dominated by a stereo or anything else, and that uh, and that uh, a lot of the technology was consolidating. Would that be kind of a good summary? Yeah, it is. It is. I think it was a good solid show, and you know, a couple nice announcements, some stalled developments, evolutionary, but. I really didn't see anything incredibly revolutionary at the show, and I think maybe that's potentially is if we see more and more kind of a, a a changing of product announcements and so forth from being so heavily focused on the trade shows and because of the web and the worldwide delivery seems that people are more comfortable introducing that stuff kind of outside the show. Right. So I, I think, you know, um, I mean, granted, I didn't go down to these satellite trucks uh, and check out the latest. <laughs> Huh. gear in the studio cameras you know and so there may have been something or shattering in that realm but uh yeah i think you're, you're i think the the recap is strong strong show seems business is strong and good evolutionary products good things year over year good developments but nothing i felt was incredibly revolutionary coming cool. on the show well look thanks so much for taking time to talk to us we really appreciate it it's uh, great to have that personal one on you know that kind of just a vibe of the show update so thanks man yeah you're welcome Thanks, John, for doing that. That's really great because these shows really do evolve. And uh, as I mentioned before with NAB, it, uh, you've seen the progression and the change in yeah. that show to more, more to production. And so it's great to get a heads up. Thank you, John. Okay, so we, we're running long, but we, we just want to quickly hit a couple of other things. And there's just one that I think is awesome that I haven't played with, but you have. Right? In fact, you actually got one of these. This is yes, here you go, Mike. The, the filter mount system. Now, this is something that is just, it's like, is there an everyday problem that I have? This is it. Yep. Um, so obviously one of the, the problems I have daily, and there are, there is limitations to this, but one of the problems I have, you know, daily shooting, say, with very NDs, is um, is that uh, they are, you know, they're expensive. You know, a very ND, just pull it. And ah. ah. Now, so um, this is basically a magnetic filter changing system. Um, basically, you just put a little sort of... Oh, God, I'm in love. <laughs> Well, you know, again, I'll, I'll come to some of the limitations, and, but I think it's still an excellent product and it's still worth looking at. Um, you basically, um, it's like, a, I guess, like a little stepper adapter ring. Put one side on your lens and the other side on your filter, and then, you know, I guess rare earth magnets, you can click and unclick your filter. So what it lets you do is quickly, is if you have... rare earth magnet? I don't know, but I'm sure they're, Sounds good. they're pretty rare. It's, it's rare stuff. It's rare magnets. stuff. Um, but Charge. you can basically, obviously, if you've got an, quite an expensive filter, say like a very ND, and if you've got a reasonably large one, that can be two or three or four hundred dollars. Uh, and you've got four or five lenses you want to put them across. Uh, rather than threading and unthreading filters all the time, you can have one filter and multiple adapters and just keep, you know, or or have two or three filters and, and change them, change them quickly. If you don't have to necessarily have a very ND, you can have. Um, one stop, two stop, and three stop NDs, and just uh, you know change those a lot quicker. Before um, I before I actually buy this online while we're doing the show because I like it so much, is that what's the downside? Well, I think the minor the downside is that obviously it's it's mag it's a magnet it is a magnet, and you mm-hmm. know if you knock it, you know it'll it'll pop off. You know you probably don't want to shoot what we were shooting this morning by the sea pool and you know up on top of rocks and things. I mean, I think if you're sort of in a nice controlled shooting environment, or you've got a map box maybe up the front where you're you know if the, if you happen to knock it or preventing it from knocking it, it's not going to go too far. So uh, there is. You know, it's not like you need a special tool to get this thing off. It's magnetic. It, you know, you could, you could, you can bump the thing. But I think it's definitely, um, 
uh, I definitely it's definitely worth looking at, and uh, I think you know it's quite quite affordable. They have a uh, two lens. They have a pro kit, which is two lens adapters and one filter adapter for about a hundred bucks, and extra lens adapters about thirty two bucks. But the very kind people at Exume Adapters have given us a our very first uh, discount code. If you enter the RC, the space RC in their store, you get ten percent off, which is very nice. Really? They didn't have to do that. Yeah, there you go. Well, I'm so, tell me that before I entered my credit card. <laughs> I feel like a complete mug if I bought it for full price and we had a discount. I didn't yeah, know that. no, I mean, I think it's going to work better if you have light filters and if you have filters that are probably. Um, like say, if they only make a 77 mil adapter at the moment. So if you're going to put a, say, an 85 or an 82 mil filter on top of that with a stepping ring, then obviously you're making a bigger filter up the front, which is a little bit more weight, and it's also a little bit easier to catch or knock, I guess. But uh, so if you need a light filter and it, keeping it the same size, keeping them all 77 mil, uh, I think it's you know definitely a, a great little product. I. Ping these guys a couple of years ago when they're in development, and I've been sort of watching and waiting for it to come out. So they finally come out, and good on them. This is um, this is somebody doing something different, and they've patented it, and it's a nice sort of simple. Again, one of those. Hey, why haven't we seen this before? Ideas. So, so we need to finish up with our gear. Yeah. But should we just do two quick gear items? Yes, two quick gear items. Um, the first one is one I wish I had a couple of months ago on my 5D, which is called the Pincher from Zakuda. I'm going to hand you something else, Mike. So you oh, can right. have a look this at is, it. This is show and tell. Yep, show and tell. It's great radio, isn't it? Um, so basically the pincher is a little small little uh, bracket that fits on the bottom of your 5D to basically <laughs> stop you knocking your <laughs> a, knock your HDMI cable. Oh, You're laughing, so Mike. That is so funny. Uh, uh, well, look, hey, a... look, I'm someone who just spent... Had spent eighteen hundred dollars replacing the HDMI port on one of my five Ds, and basically yeah. ended up being not worthwhile. It basically was sim- it was simpler to sell the body and buy another one. You know, at the end of the day. So, uh, yeah, uh, I think just repeated knocking and just it's a lot of stress and strain on quite a small little port. Um, until the five D Mark III or whatever comes along, and I'm sure the five D Mark III is going to have the same port on the back of it, on the side of it. But um, it uh, basically, like, a, it's very simple. It's just almost a little clamp. It doesn't really clamp. It just sort of holds the uh, neck of the cable coming out of the mini HDMI cable coming out of the side of your. It doesn't have to be five D. This can adapt to lots of other uh, DSLRs. Um, what it does require is that it basically sits on the Zacuto Gorilla Plate or the DSLR base plate. So you're restricted a little bit to what you mount it from. Um, but if you can make those plates work for you, then it's you know worthwhile. What is it? What's a Pinterest sent me back? Uh, One hundred and thirty bucks. So you know it's quite it's reasonably it's quite it's you know it's quite well made and or it's very well made and it's quite sturdy and and once you like a lot of Zacuto stuff, you 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 set it and it stays set. It's uh, Basically, just a little bit of peace of mind that you know you can throw the camera around that little bit more and and pull that cable that little bit tighter and and um, throw your rig around a little bit more and not worry so much about it because again it's it's just a complete pain in the ass if you screw that port you have to just look after it unless you want to you know spend eighteen hundred bucks every six uh, look, months. I, I love Sakuto for doing this and I hate that Sakuto has to do this. Yeah, I hate that it's necessary. It's the, the solution to the problem we shouldn't have, but there you go. Um, 
Okay. So, yeah, that's no, a good little line. Let me throw my gear uh, thing in, which is that Tangent showed the new Tangent. Uh, uh, yeah, your gear, I want this too. So get to the back <laughs> of the queue, okay? As soon as I saw this at IBC. Right. Oh well, my I'm God. not. I'm not going to buy this because I've just bought a um, another panel, but right. I might buy this sometime. But I'm not really going to buy this. But when I said my <laughs> bit, I meant my bit for this show. You can buy it. Go right ahead. I think it's a good product. Though. That's what I talk That's about. Freaking it. insane! It's insane product. Okay, so if anyone's ever walked into a major grading suite, you know that a really big panel, like you see on um, you know any of the major uh, things, is is pretty big, right? It's like most of the desktop and it has multiple um, uh, balls for grading the primaries and the secondaries and, and a lot of customizable and assignable buttons so that you can quickly do stuff. And of course, the whole point of doing this is that you don't have to take your eyes off the screen because you can't work a user interface with one hand nearly as well as you can work a two-handed panel, which is effectively a piano and you don't have to look where the keys are because they don't move and you can just feel and work and stare at the screen the whole time, maybe occasionally looking away for some menu stuff, obviously, but, but generally speaking, that's why a colorist has uh, an investment in what is normally a panel costing tens of thousands of dollars, or in yeah. the case of ones that have full animations that play under user-assignable knobs and are made by guitar hero experts for their polished wood, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And this thing clocks in at between three and a half and... Well, it's about three and a half, right? Maybe. Yeah, th- I've heard three and a half, and then I heard three and a half to five. So the, the price hasn't been locked in. Either way, it's insane. And that's for a kit for the whole set, which is obviously they break it down into panels. So I guess you could customize it. You can have the sort of classic kind of three ball uh, module, like a sort of tangent uh, wave. Uh, or they have a, a section for transport control and one for just a whole bank of knobs and one for a whole bank of, bank of buttons. But basically you can build the whole thing together, these four together, and, and have a, a, a pretty serious... You know, if you look at something like the Wave, which is, you know, it's kind of a bit plasticky and a bit just feels like someone bolted three, three you know, Logitech trackballs together with a bit of superglue. Um, but, but however, it's, you know, it is, they have worked incredibly hard with, with people like, um, say Blackmagic and it works incredibly well with Resolve and every knob, uh, assi- assigns perfectly to, you know, a function, uh, in, in the software it works really well for what it is. If you imagine that on steroids, you know, one of the things I didn't like about the wave was it's very plasticky and just feels like a bit of a dicky toy. Uh, this is all, uh, this is all, um, laser cut from solid aluminium construction uh they've really gone to lengths to make this a much nicer build than the wave and really if you look at it the wave itself originally was about i think about 1500 but it is about 1500 bucks for one panel this is you know if you amortize this over all these panels it's it's it's, this is almost a way this is a way cheaper um setup so very impressive. It's all USB bus powered, so no no other um, power supplies required. And they have added, although it's not listed on their website yet, they've definitely um, black. You know, I believe Blackmagic is going to be uh, supporting it. Um, and obviously, apart from color and um, um, a scratch and um, you know, Sintel and lots of other. Um, software packages are going to be supported with it so it is impressive um definitely want one so no idea on time yet but i'm i believe they're talking about the by the end of the year oh that sounds pretty good yeah bloody good that's pretty much us well that's it for the show for this week um 
It's so wonderful to have you. No, um, we actually, I'm going to jump. I'm going to got one quick little thing to to say. Um, d- a friend of the show, Dan Fung, um, Dan Fung Dennis, who did, uh, who actually spoke to us on show number fifty. Yep. Uh, he'd just come back from being embedded with uh, Echo Company and US Marines. He has uh, just launched. He's I think through Sundance, or he's just launched the trailer for his uh, much-anticipated documentary have finally come from that footage he discussed back then, Helen Back Again. And if you haven't seen the trailer for this documentary, it is insanely intense. And, uh, you know, if we weren't impressed with him and those guys before, then you will be You will be now. You really have to watch it. It's quite outstanding, and this, this is really going to be something to watch. It's starting to uh, screen, uh, I guess, obviously starting to screen in the States uh, from October. Uh, but as they say, check your local guides and, and also follow uh, Dan Fung on uh, on Twitter, twitter.com slash Dan Fung, and uh, obviously check out where you can try and catch this near to you because it's uh, quite an amazing effort. And maybe pop back to episode uh, 50 of Red, Red Center and uh, there's a link to that in the show notes and have a listen to him. I'm going to do my Twitter shout-out, actually, for uh, local company Miller Tripods, who have a Twitter feed. Um, so it's Miller Tripods, with an S. Um, and uh, obviously, if you are somebody like me who has Miller Tripods, it's kind of nice to um, follow. Uh, most of the companies like them, of course, have Twitter sites now. Uh, Satchelor has a Twitter site. Um, but I think, you know, Iconic, but there's, um, yeah, I like the guys at Miller and they're, they're Yeah, nice it's a fantastic Australian story that's just ships around the world and that's all built here. It's just sensational. Um, and also I'm going to go and buy that um, magnetic um, thing now. You actually cost me money on these shows. There's a number of things I own around here. Hey, you cost me money, but we'll get to that later. All right. Hey, um, thanks so much for being with us, everybody. Really appreciate it. And we'll catch you on the flip side. Talk to you later. Bye. Thanks for listening. Send your questions or comments to rc at fxguide.com. Copyright 2011, FX Guide, LLC.